Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is episode 57, and this is an interview with a gentleman named Mike Cohen from San Diego, California, and but it's really a story about two people. So Mike has an absolutely remarkable story. It's been featured in Bicycle Magazine, and um, we won't tell you too much about it. We'll, we'll let Mike tell you his story in his own words, but again, it is absolutely remarkable. Very difficult to believe that it actually all happened to one person. He's a leukemia survivor. He was he was diagnosed with leukemia at a young age, about 18 years old. Uh, spent a number of years battling that. Eventually, did win that battle as a result of so much chemotherapy. His heart was uh, irreparably damaged, and later began to have heart problems and suffered a heart attack in his very early 30s. And then was a heart transplant recipient. So the other person that this story really is about is a guy named James Mezzicelli who was a flight surgeon for the United States military. And uh, obviously that's a very heroic line of work. And James was killed in a flight training accident, uh, tragically, uh, but because of his dedication and um, his, uh, his making sure that his family was aware that he wanted to be an organ donor, um, you know, he saved Mike's life and a number of other people's it sounds like too. So it's an absolutely remarkable story and we were really, really honored to have Mike on and share it with us. Um, he rode 1,426 miles from San Diego, California to Jacksonville, Florida to meet James's family after his heart transplant uh, and let them listen to his heart. It gives me goosebumps just explaining it to you and I had them the entire time we were talking to Mike. So again, a huge shout out to Mike Cohen for spending some time with us. Uh, if this story does not um, stir some inspiration in you, uh, then you probably don't have a soul. We really hope that you enjoy it. I think that it's really, really something. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Spandex Panda Collection. Riding bikes inside postcards with friends across gentle rolling hills, stopping at cafes for a quick cappuccino, or enjoying a little pizza, it's what we do. We enjoy our adventure no matter where our bicycles take us. So what do we wear? In Italy, they value style. What you wear represents who you are, what you believe in, and your values. Adventure fashion. Merino is a smart choice. It's soft on the skin, a natural material, and does not need to be washed as often as synthetic clothing. We love to travel. We love to ride our bikes and enjoy the local culture, no matter where we end up in the world. From adventure to appraise, we have you covered. We learn from the past to design the future. Style design for adventure. What else would you wear? The Spandex Panda Collection. Again, Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, on to our conversation with Mike Cohen. We're honored to have you on. And, and you. we were we were talking uh, before we connected here. And we just want to, like, hear your story. Because, like I said to Tyler on the phone, if, mm. if this was a movie and if it was fictionalized, I would say that it was too unrealistic to be yeah. true that all of this has happened to one person. Like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah. we just want to hear it in your words, please. I mean, I mean, you know, that's really funny you say that because last year when I, when I was actually through the process and I'm like, I want to ride to meet my heart donors family. Like I'm putting this together. I remember talking to my friend, she, her dad worked for Shimano and he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, we could definitely hook you up with whatever group set you need and whatever. And she's like, you know, the only problem that I see with your pitch, she's like, nobody's going to believe it. And I'm like, <laughs> totally, it's crazy. Like, that's a yeah. fucking good problem to have, I guess. I mean, let me prove it to you. But I mean, it's like, but that's what like a lot of people have told me. They're like, you know, like 
typically when you see stories like this, you don't see them continue. And like they usually like end and then like the happy endings there. But it's like I don't find my happy ending and I don't really seek to, to find a happy ending until I'm not here anymore. Because this is what yeah. I want to do. Like I found my niche. I found, you know, my voice. I've learned how to take whatever I've learned in my entire life and put it towards one thing. And that's what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, so here's it. So, so here's the story. I'm 35. Um, I was born and raised in New York, um, originally in Brooklyn. And my family moved out to Long Island when I was um, turning 16 or whatever it was. And at that time, I was actually um, working. I was going to culinary school in New York City. And, um, and we were living in Long Island at the time. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the suburbs of New York. But um, it's right yeah. outside the city. And um, I remember walking to work one day. And it was snowing, and I, I, I hocked up a bunch of phlegm, and it was just covered in blood. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. So I was walking to work, which was like just a couple, just a block from my house, and she saw blood all over my jacket and everything. She's like, go home. Went home. And you're like 17, 18 years old at this time? I'm 17. I'm, I'm, eight, I'm 18. Until, yeah, I'm 18 at this point. And um, so I went home. I'm feeling awful at this point. Like I, like I remember at this point they told us that we that I might have mono just because I was going to school in the city. I was I was 18. I was active. Like I got my car. I'm making money. Like who wouldn't stop because you're 18, right? I mean, and so that night um, I remember waking up in excruciating pain, screaming on the top of my lungs, and my dad picked me up, literally physically picked me up and walked me down the stairs, pushed me into the car, and then we rushed to the local ER. Um, when we got to the local ER, they had a stretcher out already. I guess we called ahead. And the first thing they asked me is like, they like, did you do any drugs? I'm like, I wish. <laughs> I'm like, this is not drugs. This is, this is, this is not that. And um, the last thing I remember before I passed out was um, they were asking a bunch of questions. And then I felt like a jab in my arm. And we had lost my grandparents um, just a couple months. My my, my most recent grandmother passed at that point from cancer. So cancer was very, very, was a very delicate subject in my house. And, um, they were just mentioning, like the doctor was talking to my mom and I heard leukemia and I just passed out. And then the next day I woke up and, um, my mom confirmed it. She was like, you have cancer. She was like, you can't go to school anymore. Your full-time job is now just focusing on getting better. You can't go to work, can't go to school. This is it. And, at that point, um, was rushed to what was was transferred to a cancer-specific hospital at that time, and they diagnosed me with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the cancer of the bone marrow. Um, and the prognosis of that is they that cancer tends to hide in the spinal column, so you have to have spinal tap infusion chemotherapy. And I had no uh, multiple spinal tap infusions um, with chemotherapy. Um, bone marrow biopsies, two and a half years of chemotherapy. Like that was what I, what I saw in front of me. And so I just learned how to just take my life and go from what I was supposed to be to like day by day. Like I need to wake up. That's, that's a plus. I need to, you know, do whatever I need to do. And that was like, my days were very short because that's all I would think about, you know? And I lost every muscle in my body, fully atrophied. And, um, about a year in, I had, a dry cough, really, really dry cough. And um, we stopped at the the local ER at the time because my family had moved to New Jersey at that point. And um, they confirmed eventually that night that I had congestive heart failure. I had multiple pulmonary embolisms in my lungs and I had, um, I had pneumonia. 
So in the cancer world at that point, like you're, that's pretty much it. Typically the second you hear pneumonia, that's at that point, that's what I learned. And I knew was one of the worst things that a cancer patient can get because you're so immunosuppressed. You have so much, you have so many chemicals in your body at that point. And, um, like that was my, that was what I was thinking. I'm like, okay, well I'm not giving up, but I'm just like, I'm not feeling good about this. <laughs> you know, I still had chemotherapy. I still have to go through these treatments and I had my first heart failure at 19. So, um, fast forward, let's just fast forward it. And, uh, 2000, um, 2009, I told you I did that, that San Francisco half marathon. Um, and that was when I quit riding, uh, running. And then 2012 to celebrate my six years cancer free at that time, I decided to ride my bike from San Diego to New York to tell the cardiologist that told me that I wouldn't make it that I did. And so I did that 3,168 miles in 38 days. Yeah. Worst crew ever. Um, <laughs> worst bike ever. Zero fit, zero knowledge of anything at that point. But that was enough to get me like realizing like this is the best way that I could tell my story. This 38 days is fast too. 30, like we, that's not a slow tour. No, 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 no. We we did one stretch. I'll, I'll never forget it. One stretch going into from Phoenix to Albuquerque. We did 700 miles in seven days. Oof. Seven straight wow. days. I'm like, wow. well, I'm a part of the Century Club forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, like, like that whole, but that story was really. I mean, that whole ride for me was to use this to help people understand what it's like to go through cancer. Because it's like, you have this experience, you're, you're literally riding. The only way I can get to the next point is to keep riding. Each pedal stroke, each bad day, each rain, each you know, lightning storm, each hail, like that's all getting me to the next point. And I tried to use that to explain to people, I'm like, you have treatments and it takes day by day to get through your day in order to get to your goal. And that was, that was what I was hoping for that ride to be for me. But it, be, it, it ended up blowing me up to be like completely infatuated by bikes Wanting to do more rides. Uh, I got a job for Specialized at that point in a local bike shop here. Um, that was short-lived, but then eventually I ended up working at Trek at some point. I was the salesperson of the year. and <laughs> Yeah, without knowing anything about bikes. Right? Without knowing anything about bikes yeah. at that point, besides riding it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and Good for you. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, it was funny because I was in, like, I was, I had a bad stutter when I was younger. And I used to try to use food and culinary arts to be like my, like my voice. And then I learned that I was really good at telling stories and talking to people and it turned into me selling. And so I got into bikes. I'm like, this is what I did with my bike. This is what the bike has done for me. And that's, that was able to transfer into a lot of bicycle success sales. <laughs> um, that's great. But, um, but yeah, so then in, in 2012, I was working um, as an account manager for a marijuana company in San Diego. And um, it was a great opportunity. Like, I wanted to use my story to explain to people how that you could use alternative medicine for treating pain, for treating anxiety, for training, all that. And that was, that was, I was really into that. And um, I remember getting home from work one day and I made a steak. My ex girlfriend at the time was vegetarian. So I'm like, every time she wasn't there, I would try to get my steak my steak fixes in, you know, and, um, long story short, um, I started feeling like this tightness in my chest, like this really weird pain. I started getting, um, pain in my jaw, um, excruciating pain in my, the, the left part of my, my shoulder to my fingers. And, um, I said to myself, I'm like, I think I'm having a heart attack. So I'm by myself at this point. 
it's getting worse. Everything's getting worse and worse. I text my brother. I text my ex-girlfriend. I'm like, you got to get here. I need to go to the hospital as soon as you get here. And as soon as they walk in, I'm already prepared. I already have my comfortable clothes, phones charged, water bottles ready to go. And I'm literally tipping over. But the entire time, I'm saying to myself, don't go to sleep. Sit up. Do not go to sleep. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. And so they saw me literally tipping over. Brother caught me, got me into the car, and then we headed to the local ER. And almost immediately, they confirmed that I was having a heart attack. Um, it's pretty insane because it's like you're, I'm 32. I feel terrible, but it, I'm like, that kind of makes sense. And the first thing that I said to my brother, I'm like, next chapter. Like the entire room cleared out, had my wallet, had my phone with me. I'm like, I have nothing else to do besides fight. This this fight looks different than the last. It's not chemotherapy. I'm like, I think I could do this. I'm pretty, pretty positive in this. And um, that night, going through the whole process of everything, they, um, I was waiting to get a right heart cath. If, if you're not familiar, they just take a camera and they put it into your artery to see how clear your your veins and arteries are and also to see if there's any blockages in the heart. And so while they're in me, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're out, but you're not fully out. And you could hear them, you know, kind of like messing around in there. And um, it hurts. It hurts a lot. Um, but the guy says, he's like, you have the cleanest and clearest arteries I've ever seen in a patient that, that is having a heart attack. So that made me think, I'm like, huh. I'm like, all right, so I'm not, it's, this is not because of my health. This is not because I'm eating bad. This has nothing to do with that. And turns out they found a golf ball sized blood clot in the left ventricle of my heart. So you, you give yourself a fist that that clot was about this was about that big. And I have photos I could send you guys if you guys want to see them. But um, so that needed to go. And that was in a bad spot because the left ventricle, all the blood goes straight up to your brain. So I was immediately on stroke watch. Um, they put me in ICU, couldn't move. Um, the goal was to reduce that clot so that no sediment would come off because that would give me a stroke. Um, and so they were hoping that a medication was able to reduce that clot. Didn't work. They gave it two days. Didn't work. So the next thing up was open heart surgery, um, and I had to get an LVAD. So the LVAD, if you're not familiar, is a left ventricle assist device. This is a device that they literally implant into your heart via the surgery. They took the clot out. They put the, the pump in. And in order to power this device, you have to be plugged into a wall. So for six months, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, I'm plugged into a 120 DC volt. <laughs> And about 12 feet long of a cord. And they told me I would never ride my bike again. I was on blood thinners. I was, I was bad, man. I was, I, I, I was it, like, emotionally, that was one of the hardest experiences of my life because of I'm plugged into a wall. For me to take a shower, I had to use, like, VHS-sized tapes that were batteries and, and take the power from the, the cord and just transfer it to, to tapes. And then that would have to go into a leather bag for me to take a shower. If I were to walk or go to a restaurant and someone poured water on me by accident, that could electrocute me and kill me. I could take a shower, it could electrocute and kill me. I could fall, I could bleed to death. So it was like, this is not fun. <laughs> um, and so that was the first open heart surgery in August of 2000 in, um, uh, 2017. And then um, six months later, I had already in my head, I'm like, you know what? 
I'm going to put myself, get myself prepared for, um, to be listed for a heart transplant because typically when you have an LVAD, that's immediately what they tell you. They're like, you know, this is a bridge to transplant. Um, at some point you're going to need a heart transplant. This pump is not going to forever, is not going to last forever. And so, um, you know, we want you to just have that mindset when you're going through whatever plans and whatever activities you're doing. Think, the, think that way. So I'm in my head, I'm like, okay, well, if this is my situation, I'm going to make this the best I can. I mean, I'm not able to eat healthy because you can't thicken your blood when you have blood thinners, specifically when it's trying to be a enough viscosity to go through the pump and not create any drag. So um, I had to be in, be in those blood thinners. So you're not allowed to have any vitamin K, can't have any greens. You can't eat any vegetables really because that's all looking to coagulate and thicken your blood. So there's really nothing that I could do at that point to improve myself besides being active. So I just walked. I walked everywhere. Like, like I would go to malls. I would climb steps. You know, do whatever I can to get myself in the best possible shape I could. And um, so then six months later in January, I was I was due for just a routine um, blood draw, and I go in. And I felt a click that morning. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And so that night, uh, I'm sorry, that that afternoon, um, I went upstairs to the cardiology uh, floor where I usually went. And I'm like, listen, you know, I don't feel good. I just have on. Could you just take a look at what's going on? And they told me that my LDH level was up, which is uh, which lets you know that there's a there's a clot somewhere within your body. So immediately when they see that, they had to admit me. Um, and at that point, that was on January 22nd, I was in right, right, like right then and there, they were like, we're going to start getting you ready for a heart transplant because you're already in the hospital. This is the safest place you could be when you apply for your status. This is actually it, 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 it looks better that you're in the hospital rather than at home when they're looking to compare your case with other people that need a heart. So, um, so I, 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 um, started living in the hospital. Um, it was, it was terrible. It was, um, staying in the hospital, they would do all these workups on me. Um, you know, we hear now about the antibody tests that are so important to COVID, um, for a heart transplant recipient, you got to make sure you have no antibodies at all, because that will reduce the amount of options you have when the heart is available for you. So with me, I had leukemia. I had tons of blood transfusions, tons of platelet transfusions, and they tend to expect that there's antibodies because it's not my blood. Um, but I had zero antibodies. So my, my odds went even better. Um, I was able to get top one, a status because of, I had a malfunctioning, um, heart device and I was admitted to the hospital. So that allowed me to get that it's considered one, a status. And so they would keep on telling me to like, Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's president's, you know, it's president's weekend coming up, but it should be a busy weekend. You should, you might get a heart then like that, like, like the heart wow. process, Interesting. you know, yeah, like it, it, it is such a, because, because all the other organs, I mean, there's no brain transplants, but every other organ transplant, you, you're not like, no one's dying from that transplant. I mean, lungs, right. of course, I mean, lungs is different. That's that, that is the other part, but you, but if you get like a liver, you get a kidney, you get a lung, a single lung. I mean, in most cases, there's not going to be a, a, a fatality on the other end. And but like when you're waiting for a heart, there's no schedule. There's no like pr preparation. You just have to be here. And like I was lucky enough to have my my first heart issue just six months before. And so I had a 
my my first open heart surgery would have been the exact same procedure that I'm about to have that I'm waiting for. So it was just a matter of accepting when that call would be, and I knew what the procedure would be after that. So they give you 1A status for 30 days, and I it was so my birthday is February 21st. I celebrated my birthday inside the hospital, and I'm like, like that's my gift. Like give me a heart. I turned 33, and um, I remember walking around like the hallway on the day of the 24th. I was walking around just just doing my normal laps, and they said, "Hey, Mike, you know, do you mind if we check your your height?" Like on my walk, and I was just like, "Uh oh, <laughs> I think this might be it," and didn't hear anything in. And then got, then the nurses came in that morning or the, that afternoon and said, "You're going to go home. We're going to discharge you. Your your counts have gotten low enough for us to feel comfortable for you to go home, and you can wait for your transplant at home." I didn't feel good about this, but I'm like, "Okay." I could at least sleep in my own bed. I could, I mean, I'm only 15 minutes away from the hospital. Like, it, you know, it's not like one of those situations where I'd have to call the cops or, you know, have the road shut or anything like that. Cause they do that stuff. It's pretty insane. Um, so I'm like, okay, perfect. I'm starting to pack up. I'm like, I'm going home. I, I called my ex-girlfriend. I'm like, I'm going home. You need to come get me in a couple hours. And I'm sitting at my chair. I'm sitting in my chair waiting for everybody to come. And I get another call. They're like, we have good news and bad news. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what do you want first? I'm like, I'll take the bad news. They're like, you're not going home. But the good news is we found you a heart. And at that point, you're told you don't expect anything until you wake up the next day with that heart. Because that process is so, like, it is perfection at its finest. <laughs> like, like, they literally measure every aspect of you and... Literally up until the, the, the minute that they call you down for your surgery, they want you to not move. Like you are like in prep, nothing can go wrong because that heart is literally coming in for you. Like that is like your incoming gift. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that night my friends came by, we were playing Super Mario Kart on N64 and Goldeneye. That was a really good way for me to just settle my mind. And, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Classics. And, yeah, I mean, there's no way you could, you know, go for 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 a second open heart surgery for a heart transplant without playing Goldeneye. Um, but then, yeah, so then that um, I'll never forget it. We got into the we got in the hallway, and all my friends were like in front of me, and I'm in the stretcher with the two technicians around me. And that's when you think that's when you say to yourself, like, this is it. Like, I don't know if I'll see these people again. It's possible. I'm not being negative, but it's definitely potentially there and um that door closed and i'm like okay let's do this and i get down there and i'm like i'm like hey guys i'm like nice to meet you guys i'm like i hope you guys have enough caffeine hope you guys are not tired <laughs> and um i really appreciate all of you and they put some radio head on and they, they told me to count down from from 10 and i got to seven and the next day i woke up <laughs> wow. 14 hours later i have a new heart is that the surgery is 14 hours? So the so a normal open heart surgery goes 12 hours, but for a heart transplant, what happens is they literally take your heart out first and they have you on a machine until that heart is is has been inspected and is ready to go. So they do the open heart surgery on me initially, but then I'm just saying there, you know, chest broke open, everything's all ready to go, blood circulating on this machine, and then the heart comes. And then that heart is placed into you, you know, 
they shock you, and then they wait for that first heartbeat. And that whole process takes about 14 hours, yeah. Wow. What, what do you remember when you woke up, Mike? Uh, I mean, I remember not believing I'm up because I, I'm like, this is too short for me to be up. <laughs> like, this feels like just a couple minutes, but it was 14 hours. Especially anesthesia makes you, you don't have any All sense over the of time, You have right? no yeah. idea where you are, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I woke up in ICU and, like, you know, it was really cold. Like, I mean, like, I wasn't able to talk. I had a breathing tube in my mouth. Um, I was just so happy. I'm like, I'm like, I, I feel the incision, obviously I feel, I know I'm not supposed to be here if I didn't receive a heart transplant. So I think things gradually came, you know, to make sense as I'm just sitting there, but it really came in there when, um, my brother came in and he's like, he's like, you know, you have a new heart, right? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> such a, such a, such a, like, oh, it's such a crazy feeling. But the cool thing is about my story is that there's so much of a story that I was I was very lucky lucky and grateful to learn about my heart donor. So that's that's yeah. the part of this that just is un unbelievable. So they tell you when you're, I mean, I made it very clear in the beginning when I knew I was going to get a heart transplant that I want to establish some level of communication, even if I could just send them a card, even if I could just send them a letter just to let them know who I am, let them know what I plan on doing with this heart, and and. You know, not even expecting anything in return. Like, just be completely fine with them knowing who I am. And if they have the interest of finding out who I am, I am open, you know, completely open for it. And so, six months. So, I was, so I had the heart transplant on the 24th to the 25th. I was discharged on March 12th. I received a letter from my heart donor, my heart donor's family, six weeks after I was discharged. Which is really, really, which is very rare. And so... I'm like, this is, this is amazing, but I'm not ready to write back yet, you know? And, but then I started noticing, like, after reading that letter, I started noticing new names on my Instagram, like people that are following me. I'm like, that's a very familiar name, like Masuchelli. I'm like, okay. I'm like, so he has some family, a lot of family, but okay. And then, she, yeah, so then I read the letter and I just remember saying to myself, I'm like, I want to meet them. I want to figure out how to, I mean, how to meet them because because you're, so you're told when you're getting a heart transplant, it's about three hours. So you, you like that heart needs to be about three hours flying or three hours driving from where whatever vicinity you're at. So San Diego is not a great spot for heart transplant recipients because you have you have the ocean and you have Mexico, and then unfortunately you have you have you have eastern Arizona. I'm sorry, you have western Arizona, but they try to keep those for Arizona, and then so you really have LA to here. But then LA has three spots. They have Southern California. They have Eastern, you know, uh, Central Eastern California, and then Northern California. So like, it's it's not a great spot, but whatever. It's San Diego. <laughs> You're not going to complain about yeah. that. Um, so I thought it was like three hours away. So I'm like, okay, he could be maybe in Arizona. Maybe he could be somewhere in Central California. I'm like, but whatever that is, I want to meet him. And so, um. I ended up finding out that he was living, that his family's from Jacksonville, Florida. And so in my head, in my head, this is after they told me I wouldn't ride my bike anymore. After I sold all my bikes, I'm like, I want to ride to meet him. Like I want to meet his family. And so they require you to have cardiac rehab, which is, you know, just a, a way to just do basic cardio, but then they have, you know, all the leads on you to make sure, you know, that, that your heart rate's not going too crazy. And so I, I was the youngest guy in the entire room. And I started, you know, I started work. I mean, I've worked in the gym before, so I know what I'm doing. And 
there was a stationary bike in the corner the entire time. And I'm like, I'm not going to go near that yet. I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not looking at it. I wouldn't look at it at all. Every time I would just walk the other way, I would do all my work on the other side. And then one day I, f- I started feeling really, really good. I'm like, so I go up to the tech. I'm like, any way I can go on that bike? They're like, of course. So I got nervous, of course. And then like, you know, I adjusted the saddle height. I made sure the ball and pedal was in the center of my, you know, the ball of my foot. And I'm like, I could do this. I'm like, I was on for three minutes, but I'm like, I could do this. And nice. from that point forward, like I reached out the trek. I'm like, this is what I'm looking to do. I'm like, could you help me out? They're like, yeah, we'll give you a frame. Like I was saying before, I spoke to my friend who, um, her dad worked for Shimano. I'm like, all right, cool. The bike, the bike situation's all set. And then I reached out. I started just looking for sponsors. I'm like, let me figure out a way to do this. And um, it turns out that they wanted to meet too. So I'm like, now we have an interesting story. I'm like, now we have, because I was going to do it regardless. Like if they said that they weren't down, I would, I still asked for their permission. And I was just going to ride to where his burial site is, which is at the Jacksonville National Cemetery. That's not hard information for me to find out because I was able to find out his name. So once I found out that they wanted to meet, I'm like, this changes everything. You know, I want to make sure that they're okay with everything, you know, like literally ran everything by them. And we got the, we got the Today Show. They wanted to um, meet us at the end. Bicycling Magazine jumped on. They decided to do a feature, um, which, and, and also to film and produce a documentary, which currently should be coming out any within the next couple of weeks, days, months, who knows? Wow. This this year's been pretty nuts, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. This year was supposed to be last year, but then obviously everything happened with COVID, so that destroyed any of their time frames. And then, you know, with everything else that happened this year, like there's no way that they were gonna drop a documentary like in the middle of all that's going on when people really don't care. Right? I mean, like who cares right now about anything besides figuring out how to, you know, make our ends meet at this point or whatever we're doing, right? So, um, yeah, so then, like, I started training. Um, I don't know if you know this guy. His name is Randall Franson. He's based out of, um, he's a cyclocross rider out of Portland. And he started virtually just just helping me get back on the bike. Um, and eventually I just started riding, riding, riding. It felt good. And we got sponsors. We got sponsors throughout the whole thing. And um, total ride ended up being, so I had a new rider with me. He wasn't very familiar with the road. We ended up taking a lot of um, close roads off. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but we did a total of four th- uh, 1,426 miles in riding. Wow. Um, did every mile of that. Physically felt great. Um, got there on November 20th and rolled into the cemetery and saw his mom, his stepdad, his stepsisters on the right. His entire family was on the left. And stopped my bike. Hey. And just gave her a hug. And we all walked over to the to the gravesite. And I finally had some time with James alone. So everybody, you know, kind of gave me some space. And you know, I guess it all hit. It all hit and it was all worth it at that point. And it, it was like meeting his family, like that day, like we were able to have dinner at their house that night and like all of his family, I mean, I bought a stethoscope for everybody to listen to his heart and we got oh, there wow. and there was, his entire family was wrapped around the kitchen and like just waiting to listen to his heart. I never, like, I never met a family in my life that was so dedicated to their person, like, like, like their, per- like, like I just, like, 
like what families do we know besides our own, right? We really don't ever experience what people go through. And this is the first time I ever did. And I'm, I'm completely cognizant that this is the best day of my life at the worst time of theirs. And I wanted them to know that I'm here. Like, like their heart is in their lives. Um, he's keeping me alive. Not here if it wasn't for the either of them, um, you know, for their family and for him. And, you know, whatever I could do to, to help your family out in any way, I'm here. I want to let you know that I am part of your family now and I'm here. And he was in the military, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So this part, I'll tell the first general part about it, but then there's going to be a part that I can't share publicly, but I'm just yeah. sharing with you guys because it's fucking rad. Um, so, <laughs> all right. So he was in the military. He was a Navy flight surgeon and he was stationed at Camp Pendleton. So that's about 45 minutes from the hospital where I was staying at in La Jolla. So I was staying at... Um, the Sulpizio, uh, the UCSD Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center. And so he, so what happened that night was it was on my birthday, February 21st. Um, he, him, so he was training to become a flight, uh, for him to become a pilot. And so he was already a surgeon. He was, he was already a field surgeon. So if, so if anybody was injured on the battlefield or any, at any point, he was the doctor. And so that night, him and three other people were training. It was pitch black. There was a pilot, co-pilot himself, and another soldier inside of a Black Hawk. And there was wing walkers. And I mean, I'm not familiar. I mean, I'm not familiar either. But I was told that when it, you know when they're doing helicopter training, it's it's black, loud, and you you could lose your your bearing very very quickly. And so what happened was the the helicopter. Um, took off, but it like stumbled or shook, and so they they made him um, like land, and it turned out there was something wrong. So James ran out of the right side of the of the helicopter when I guess he was supposed to run out of the left side of the helicopter, and the next thing that was known was that the wing walker felt something hit his leg, and that was his helmet, and so they called for a doctor, and he was the doctor. So the rear propeller hit him in the head and probably, I mean, I mean, let's put it this way for him to be eligible to donate as much as he did, that head had to be pretty much gone. And the rest of the body was completely separate at that point. So with his family being in Jacksonville, they were trying to see if they could stabilize him, but he was in bad shape. And so he ended up donating, um, his heart, his corneas, his skin, um, bone, kidneys, everything but the lungs. The lungs were destroyed, but everything else was fine. I'm speechless. Like, it's such a crazy story. And he, you know, James was obviously, he did, he was in a very heroic line of work and he died a hero too, right? He went out that way. Yeah. Can you tell us what people's lives? Yeah. Um, Can you tell us what James was like as a person? Like, you know, I'm sure you've heard some stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, James, James was, um, so, so he, he loved, he he loved motorcycles. I wasn't really into motorcycles. Uh, he just, he, he recently received his, uh, his scuba certification, um, just a couple months when he was stationed in Okinawa. Um, and he was, he was just a, like he loved drinking. He loved partying with his friends. Nothing crazy, but just 
you know, he's a military guy, loves to drink. Yeah. Um, just would always do whatever he can for his friends. Um, a lot of similarities between the both of us. I could tell you that. Like, there wasn't too much. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm still learning about him without even talking to his family that I, that I can kind of feel certain perspectives that I have now that I didn't have before. Um, like, for instance, like, I mean, I said I'm from New York. I hated pizza my whole life. <laughs> and he was obsessed with pizza. And now I love pizza. I, I, I literally have spent Brooklyn, Little Italy in New York, uh, Manhattan, Long Island, New Jersey. Like, yeah. I had pizza everywhere, and it was just not my thing. And now I love pizza, and I'm okay with Trader Joe's flatbread pizza. So that just shows you, like, pizza is pizza. I mean, at least the James. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the last name is Mazzuccelli, right? Right? So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Pizza exactly. and pasta, right? <laughs> exactly. There you go. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the fact that he was into scuba diving, which is really interesting. Like when I first finished, um, when I first received his heart, I got into photography because I'm like I can't I can't do anything physical right now, but at least I could hike, I could walk, you know, I could go to the coast, you know, Pacific Beach or La Jolla or whatever it is, and I'm just gonna take photos. And every time I would go to take photos on the beach, two military helicopters would fly by, two every single time. I I, I swear, like I'm just like I've never like. I'm a cyclist. I don't need to surf. I, I, I don't do anything with water. I like land and flat stuff, but <laughs> this guy's following me around everywhere I'm going. <laughs> you know, it was just like, it's just a trip. It's an absolute trip. So how are you feeling? Yeah. How are you feeling today? What, like what's, what's your day to day like today? Um, well, besides my crash, besides my crash last week, oh, yeah. um, I was averaging I'm averaging right now about 130, 250 miles a week. Um, That's great. I'm looking, yeah, I'm, I have a project that, I've, that I'm building for 2021. I'm riding from Mexico to Canada to raise money for COVID frontline workers. And I also want to share my story with organ donation um, because obviously with all the COVID people, unfortunately, um, there's going to be a lot of need for organs. Like I've already spoke to people in that world and, they're like, we're having a lot of problems getting people hearts and get, getting people livers and lungs. And so, like, I feel like if I could share my story on a bigger platform, um, maybe I'd be able to get as many people to just sign up because it's really easy to become an organ donor. Um, and, of course, you know, with COVID, I mean, everybody needs help right now. So if I could use my current health and my, my, re, my rebirth of becoming a, you know, a 150-mile-a-week rider now, which I'm obsessed. Like I love riding. Like I'm I'm a professional cyclist. That's it. I'm not doing anything else. I'm doing what I love. Whatever's going to keep me healthy. Um, I'm going to share my story and whatever that looks like. That's what I'm doing. And um, so yeah, I mean, once this rib goes away, like this rib issue that's not broken, I guess, um, I'm just going to go back to riding, training for that, do all the you know all the the, the logistics and that, um, all the sponsorships, all that fun stuff. I'm sure you guys know about that. Um, just riding, staying healthy. Um, I'm with my family right now. I bought a camper in January looking to um, just just go up the coast and just ride bikes and kind of kind of just enjoy my life. 2020 didn't go that way. So I I docked the the camper up in Ojai and um, I am with my family now. But um, it's really the safest place for me to be, especially with my immunosuppression. I really can't be... Sure. I can't take a chance to be on the road without, you know, some level of stability. It's just not worth it. 
Yeah, so, like COVID would be a disaster for you, right? COVID, yeah, because I mean, all the precautions that people are, are taking now is what I would take before all this happened. Like wearing masks, right. you know, very, very highly, you know, high volume places. If I'm on the, you know, on the plane to bring, you know, any kind of uh, disinfectant wipes and all that stuff. Like I've done this for months, like before, even close to a year before this even happened. So I'm prepared for it. And it's really good that other people are, are wearing masks too and taking these precautions because then at least there's less people out there that are not compared to before, but yeah, I mean, COVID is, I mean, it's not something I want to take my chances with. Yeah. How much, um, how much routine is surrounding, um, having, like when you receive a transplant, like you did, like, is there a bat, like a battery of medications that you're always taking? And stuff? Um, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, so I had at one point I was on 14 different medications. Uh, I had 52 pills for the day. Now I'm down to like 11 pills for the day. I think I take, let's see, I take, I take, I take eight in the morning. I take five, so it's eight, five, 13, and I take another four. So was that 17? But that's the entire yeah. day. So that's like spread out. And the best part about that is that the medication I'm taking, the majority of them are, are just vitamins. So I'm just taking two anti-rejection medications because the way that works, which is really cool, is so let's say your dosage is four. Two of those pills are there to trick the, your immune system to let the other two actually fight what it needs to fight. It's crazy. Okay. So you have four pills. Two of them are decoys. The other two are actually doing two medications. That is, but it's, it, it's nuts. There is so much wow. that, that I've learned. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, another thing that, that happens when you have a heart transplant. So you know how people could treat with HRV? You know, how, like being able to see, you know, what your amount of time in between, uh, between each of your heart rates are. Um, with me, they cut a nerve. I forgot the name of the nerve, but they cut a nerve that my, my, heart, rate my heart rate variability can never be accurate because that nerve is not connected to my heart. That that's part of my body, but not part of the initial heart, which is, cr which is crazy. So like my heart rate variability says I'm at like four. I'm like, I just rode 50 miles. It's not possible. <laughs> but they're like, don't ever go by that. Like, like the whoop is actually the most accurate way to at least be able to check your heart rate variability um, if you don't have a heart rate variability that's accurate. <laughs> but right. it's interesting. There's right. different and, pieces that you learn. And you, do you need to train pretty carefully? Um, right? Not anymore. I mean, right now, really? like my, yeah, like, like, I'm like I'm very on top of my health. Like I know when I'm out of whack. Um, and like my heart, like I train only heart right now. Like I only train going by my heart. So on the road, I'm actually way more comfortable on the road than I am on gravel. Like I average on the road, I think I get like, I'm at like maybe, um, like at max, I hit like 165 is my max. And then like I average from 130 to 150, but that's like if I'm really trying hard. Like I never... Like, I can't push myself. That's the interesting part about this, too. Like, I can't, like, go all out. There's no 10 out of 10 effort for me. I can't do it. Like, I don't know if that's me not able to connect with my heart yet that, or my, my brain with my body with my heart. But I'm able to, like, I'm able to stay at 160 without being completely out of breath, which is really interesting. Like, I feel like my heart muscle is getting strong. That is for sure. 100%. And I mean, I've lost 30 pounds since, since, uh, May 25th because of just riding every day, 
you know? And like, I mean, I asked them, I'm like, do I have to be concerned because now I'm 30 pounds less than I was when I received the heart. Do I have to like right. eat more to make sure that the heart, you know, like fits me properly? <laughs> like, right. like, no, that's actually better to, to like the less effort that your, that your body has to do, the less weight that you have on your body, the easier it is for you, for, you know, for the rest of your organs to be, to be at their prime <laughs> position. So, all right, I'm going to keep losing weight, whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. You're more efficient now. Yeah, yeah. Very, very efficient. Like I can't, like, I just can't blow myself up, which is fine. Like I feel yeah. Yeah. like I'm gradually putting more and more effort and I'm definitely pushing that, that 165 ish max heart rate. I'm gradually able to add to that, but it's only at a level that I feel comfortable, which is safe, which I'm fine with that. I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky with my, with the awareness that I have, especially with all you know, health issues that I've had. I'm very, very grateful for, um, my fitness and my, my, my health awareness at this point. What a story. <sighs> it's, a story. yeah, unbelievable. I mean, you have, and you've been reborn twice, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. it's an unbelievable story. And I am so grateful that you came on to share it with us. It's Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to be on with you guys. Cause I've, been listening for a while and you know i'm constantly looking for the right podcast to share my story because I, I, I mean a lot of people don't understand what adventure is and adventure is really in the eye of the beholder right i mean how many people are doing different right. versions of adventures like you have those flags in the background of you like you see adventure in one way and for me my adventure and that's why i want to keep pushing what i'm doing is because i feel that there's so many athletes that are incredible and but they're not always have to be professional to be incredible. There's some people out all. there that do some really cool stuff that are not getting the same accolades as, you know, Primo Roglic, you know, Primo Roglic yeah. or, you know, Peter Sagan or whoever it is. Like that adventure is literally to that individual person. And I feel like the more realistic those adventures are, that's how you can get followers that could be like, hey, I want to do that too. Like I had a heart transplant or I had a heart attack. Maybe I can get on the bike. The bike is great for me. Like I don't have to have the impact. I could... I, I could put it on a trainer when I'm home. Like, like cycling and adventure is, is something that I feel that unifies so many parts of our community because we've all been through something, whether it's adversity, adventure. I feel it's all in the same category. You know, we all have to get through something in order to get to the next place. And I'm really grateful to be on your guys' podcast because it's like I'm, I'm not only looking to be a heart transplant recipient kind of representation. I want to be an athlete. You know, like I'm doing things every day that professional athletes and people that are training their whole lives are doing. I'm just doing it because I'm trying to inspire people and share my story. But I could help people and that's what I want to do and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So. And well, the transplant community and the cancer community too. Like, mm -hmm. man, you're on a short list of people who have that kind of experience. That yeah. is for sure. Yeah. That's, it's unreal. So yeah, man, thank you again. Where can people follow along with uh, everything? And, um, like, you know, is there a website, social media, yeah. where can people yeah. follow? Um, so on my, so my website is just mrmikecohen.com. So it's M R M I K E C O H E N.com. And then my Instagram handle is the same thing as Mr. Mike Cohen. So I primarily use Instagram and the website, um, for any, for any level of, uh, communication, you know, any level of interaction, um, photos are on there, videos are on there, interviews are on there articles are on there, whatever, if people want to learn, like learn more about James, there's a lot of information about there on there. Um, he's an amazing man. He's an amazing family. And 
I'm so proud and so and so grateful to to have his heart and do what I can to keep his his memory just continuing. Amazing. Thank you wow. again. Wow. Thank you. Um, and let's, yeah. hey, let's stay in touch. Like if this, this ride that you're going to do 2021, man, I want to yeah. follow along with that. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll lend support in whatever way that we're able. Sounds great. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, let me know when you're riding through uh, Missoula, Montana. Yeah, it'd be, it would be great to meet you. Or maybe yeah. someday, you know, Pete and I can get out and do an adventure with you. Yeah, yeah. of course. It sounds great. I'm definitely down for but, that. Yeah. But yeah, real honor to meet you and uh, yeah, keep up the great work. You're just a real inspiration. Thank Huge you. inspiration. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Mike. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. Stay safe, okay? Sounds good. You too, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Another big thank you to Mike Cohen for spending some time with us. And um, please check out his website, Mr. Mike Cohen. Uh, follow him on Instagram. Super, super cool. We're very excited to see what other adventures that he is going to plan um, in the near future. Hopefully he's able to take on his um, planned trip in 2021, which would be from Mexico to the Canadian border going up the west coast of North America, which would be super, super cool. Um, and we will make some efforts to support him in whatever way that we're able and to raise awareness for all the cool stuff that he's doing. And thank you everybody for listening. We do really greatly appreciate you uh, coming back and spending time with us. If you're able to help us grow the podcast in whatever organic way you're able to lend some support, whether that is a positive rating or review on whatever podcast platform that you find the show or just by word of mouth, we do really appreciate that. And we will be back to you very soon.